Good morning. Good to be with you, see you today. Legend has it that despite a 10-year siege of the city of Troy by the Greeks, the citizens remain safe and untouched. Uh, the Greek armies, after all of those years, could never penetrate the defenses of the city. They, they remain safe until that morning when they saw that huge wooden horse outside and they all decided, let's bring it in, which led to the infamous fall of the city of Troy. In a similar fashion, we have a Lord who saves us completely, fully. He is unchangeably perfect. The one who has all wisdom, all power, and goodness. These are unmatched categories. No one can claim to be who Jesus, the Son of God, is. No one can even consider being able to do what he does to provide what he provides for his people. And yet, at times, God's people can be tempted to bring in other options into our lives, thinking somehow, this is going to make my life better. The main point of the passage we're going to look at today in Hebrews chapter 13, the main point is that Jesus is better than anything that the world champions. Jesus is better than anything that the world champions. So we, in our study through the book of Hebrews, we're coming near the end. We're in the final chapter. Uh, this morning we're going to read and, and look at verses 8 through 16. Would you read with me? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God." 
Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and our desperate need is to see our Lord Jesus clearly. We ask that by your Spirit you would help each one of us in this. Wherever we are distracted bring our attention to you, where we have allowed deception to accumulate in our life, that you would strip that away, where there are those who may not even really know Christ, that you would cause them to see him in his wondrous, saving glory and love. Help each of us in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In the message this morning. First, I'm going to clarify a couple of the cultural references that may not be fully clear to us. And as we read through them, we're not sure exactly what what point the author is going to make. And then we'll look at the challenge that he brings up that we have in our following Christ fully. And then how he, in the final verses, gives us direction. How do we move ahead in the way that we follow the Lord? So, starting first with bringing some clarity to parts of the passage that may not be clear to us. Two cultural references that the original readers would understand immediately. And that is in verse 10, where it speaks about an altar that we have no right to eat from. And then the phrase in verse 11 that's repeated a couple times about being outside the camp. Now, both of these expressions were uh, pointing to the Jewish Day of Atonement, which we read about in Leviticus 16. It is the celebration that we know of today as Yom, Yom Kippur. It was the most important annual day of sacrifice on the Jewish calendar. It was the only dime of the year that the high priest in entering the temple would go all the way inside to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was located. And on that day alone, the high priest would enter through the curtain to where the ark was, and he would offer a sacrifice of blood on what was called the mercy seat. And that place in the temple symbolized the presence of God among the people. And that offering was a sacrifice made for all of the sins of the people through that year. And for that sacrifice alone, the priests were not allowed to eat any portion of the animal given. Normally, that's part of what, how the nation supported the priests. They would offer part of the animal as a sacrifice, and then the rest of the animals always went to the priests who they and their families were able to eat of it. But on the Day of Atonement, they were not allowed to eat of any of the sacrifice. Instead, the entire animal, every part of it was taken outside of the camp and of the city, and there it was completely burned. And so Hebrews, which was written to Christians who had a Jewish background, when they would hear about the altar that no one was able to eat and taking the sacrifice outside the camp, they knew immediately, oh, he's speaking of the Day of Atonement. 
And the point that is being made here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Day of Atonement symbolized. That Jesus was the once and forever offering to pay the penalty for our sin. And we see that in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood, pointing to his crucifixion outside of the city where he was sacrificed, his blood shed, our sin paid for. The point being made is that Jesus truly is all that we need. And for those who were raised in Jewish culture and background and had grown up being a part of those ceremonies and following the Mosaic law, once they came to Christ, they understood Jesus was fulfillment. They, they no longer had to perform those ceremonies, but they, they were pulled by our culture. They were encouraged and exhorted by their friends and family. Uh, don't give up the heritage of our background. And so the writer wants them to know, remember who Jesus is and what he has done, and that his sacrifice is so far greater than all the sacrifices made that he alone fulfills it all. Jesus has solved the great problem of our soul and of the world's groaning, which is sin. Every struggle, suffering, evil, death, burden, sickness, every bit of sorrow in the world has come out of the existence of sin. And Jesus alone was able to resolve that. Jesus alone was actually able to remove the guilt. Not a symbolic, Lord, we're sorry, we want to do better. Jesus actually paid the price, the penalty God requires for sin. And through Jesus, the guilt of sin is washed forever. Our souls cleansed, our guilt never coming back to us. Jesus has accomplished that in full. And more than that, he comes by the Spirit, dwells in us, and he fulfills what we were created for. What our hearts yearn for and wanting to be purposeful and wanting to be full and wanting life to be good, Jesus leads us to all of that. In John chapter 7, Jesus himself speaks about the impact of trusting him with all of our heart. He, he says this in John 7, 37, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think what picture Jesus was trying to create in, in people's minds when he said that. In a, a culture which was dominated by agricultural and and. Uh, the care of animals, to have a fountain that never stopped flowing meant life and all that we needed. You didn't have to depend on the circumstances of whether or not it rained. You had water. That meant you had life. 
which meant you could grow your crops in abundance. Your animals would be healthy. It was a picture of life being full and overflowing with the goodness of God. There would be no want or lack. And Jesus said, if you trust in me, that is what will be in your heart. That is what I will be to you. And so we, we're called, once again in this book, we're, we're called to stick wholeheartedly with Jesus. Because any other direction we go, any other voice we listen to, it will fail us. Jesus alone, unchangingly eternal, cannot, cannot fail. But there is challenge to that. Living wholeheartedly for Christ doesn't fit in any earthly culture. Religion is fine. Even that you would believe in Jesus, people have no problem with that. Wholeheartedly for him, your entire life committed not compromising, not at some points and in some ways, but all of life being given to live for him, that does not fit the value of any culture in this world but that of those who have trusted in Christ. Wholehearted for God? That's too fanatical. Jesus alone saves That's too narrow. Jesus is Lord? That's kind of threatening. Biblical lifestyle? That's too old-fashioned. Whatever culture we're in, whatever the culture surrounds you, it is trying to press you or pull you in different directions. In the text at the time, the writer was giving this letter to the Hebrew believers. Uh, the, the push and pull was, don't leave your culture. This is how you're raised. This is what your family is. Don't leave what you were raised in. The world has many other methods to convince us to drag in their Trojan horse. The, the pull of attraction. Look at this. This. This is more fun than you have what you're doing. This. This is so freeing. So wonderful. Come, let's be a part of this. It's always fun until the bill comes. And the bill always arrives, which many of you have experienced. God invented fun. Whatever fun is to us, what fun does in the heart and mind, uh, those reactions are God-given. God created us to have joy, to experience happiness and 
and God created the world to give joy and happiness. So God is not against any of that. God is the inventor of it all. But we cannot truly enjoy life, ourselves, the world, if we push off the truths and values of the creator who designed and made it all. Joy doesn't last when we reject the creator. Or another method that is used is that of activity. You need to do all of this to be a good person or a good parent. A good parent is going to be a part of all these activities you have to keep up. And whether or not we're told it, that's what we're seeing around us. And we better have our children in all of these things. And God is all for purpose and activity. God made us to be purposeful, to have meaningful life. God made us for activity. God is not against that. But putting him anywhere other than first place is a form of denial of him and of his nature and of the truths of his goodness and the sufficiency we have in him. When we make or allow schedule to rule our life and the busyness of it, it's going to reshape our priorities. And we may say that the Lord is first, but our, our life won't look that way, and our children certainly won't get that message. Or they may hear it, but see something else in how we live. Increasingly in our culture, there is the method of bullying. Interesting how bullying is such a big topic in the world, and yet that's what the culture does to those who disagree. We are increasingly in a bullying society. You must embrace our ideas or we will shut you down. And people are intimidated by that, intimidated into disaster. Because many of the things that culture is calling us to believe in and jump into, uh, they have no idea what the consequences will be. May not be consequences they intend, but the consequences are severe, deadly, destructive, ruinous. Many are being intimidated to follow them. Much of it is in the name of justice, and no one calls for justice more than God. Indeed, God will have complete and total justice. He will have consequences and payment for every sin either on us or on Christ. God will have total justice. But in this world, when we try to pursue justice without recognizing sin is the problem, without recognizing the gospel of Jesus Christ is the solution, 
we will in every case eventually pervert justice and we'll never get it. One other way that culture uses to to get us to pull in their ideas, their Trojan horse, and that is fear. Threat alerts. Whether you're, you're reading a paper or listening to the radio, watching TV, and it's meant to fill your heart with anxiety and disturbance. It just instills fear. You have to be afraid of this and that which is happening. Look with the other side what they're doing. And, and fear stirs up in our soul. Anxiety builds and anger comes out. We have to do something. And what we have to do is we start following after the world's weapons and ways. And we start picking up their weapons to fight the battles that they're putting us in fear for. But none of these weapons will ever change a single heart incapable of restoring a single soul. Certainly God wants righteousness on the earth. He wants righteousness to rule over our lives. However, we we need to be clear about what the Word of God says. And people of God who know the Word of God, what weapons does the Bible give? The Bible. What weapons does the Bible give? And what place does the Bible say fear should have. The only fear we're called to is the fear of honoring the Lord. We, we live in the culture and we have responsibilities and we have privileges to participate, but we must never think that that participation is going to save and transform. And we must particularly be on guard every time we come into the cycle of another election because the intensity to be afraid, to be angry, and use the world's weapons will increase. And I have a degree in political science. I have an entire wall of presidential biographies and memoirs. I have a shelf, just the, the study of presidential elections. It's not that I've had no interest or understanding of these things. But we have to admit it's just become yelling at each other. The gospel's not lifted up. We're not encouraged in righteousness. So as we participate, think of what weapons we're given, which is the truth of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out in love. That's what we are given to fight what is all around us. But we're tempted to let down our guard. 
and to let cultural influences in and begin to shape us and how we think. But none of these voices have the power to uphold the claims they make or the promises they offer. They cannot hold them up. They cannot fulfill them. They can make them. They can't make it happen. And so, Christ follower, what voices are you listening to? Being shaped by, trusting in. Thinking of John 7, we already read of Jesus saying, if you believe in me, from your heart will flow rivers of living water. Uh, a warning was given with that same theme in mind in the Old Testament, because all the Bible's consistent. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the Lord says, my people, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that have no water. Now, since most of you probably don't have a cistern in your house, <laughs> it, it was usually a, a cement or a, a rock a pit. It is meant to hold rainwater. So people would have some water. So a cistern was just collecting the water. So the scripture is saying, you have me, the fountain of living water, and you turn away to make some lesser form for you, and you try to make your own way to hold water, and it doesn't even work. Not only is it less than the, the fountain of living water, it's got all these cracks in it because you made it. It's the best you can do, but it cannot give you life. It cannot grab life. It cannot hold life. Only God can do that. And so we, we need to regularly reassess. What do you think about security? What makes you feel secure and why? What are you looking for to be secure? How are you defining what is successful? What measurement are you using? How about approval? Whose approval do you want? Do you feel that you need, that you're, you're yearning for? Whose approval is all that you need? Worth, how do you define your own worth? how you are valued. Does not the gospel answer all of those things? Is not God in Christ all of the security, worth, approval, fullness, success? Does not Christ bring all of that to a measure the world cannot imagine? The sinful world will never produce a culture that supports Jesus as Lord. It will never happen. So we must be committed to living where he is. Verse 13, therefore. 
Let us go to him outside the camp, outside the culture. Let us go to where Jesus is and bear the reproach he endured. Jesus is outside the world's camp because he stands in his own kingdom. And the wonderful news, people of God, is that's our kingdom. His kingdom is our kingdom. To be where he is is to be home, where we belong, where we will forever dwell. Now, if we stand with Christ, the world will not applaud. Indeed, the world will snarl. It'll sneer. But Jesus is, he is not only better than, he is enough. Just flat out. Jesus himself, our savior, our king, our deliverer, our healer, the lover of our souls who rescues us forever, he is enough to satisfy and make our hearts content no matter how many disagree, no matter what they say. Life in Jesus is enough for that because life in Jesus does not stop with the limits of this world and lifetime. It has a place it's taking us. Jesus is wondrously enough, fully enough, eternally enough. It doesn't mean it's easy for us or that we stay focused. And so in the last few verses of the passage, it it gives us some direction. How do we move forward? How do we go outside the camp? How do we stay secure and, and focus and, and not drift from where we belong? And it gives us three, three directions, three helps to us that we'll look at quickly. The first, know where your home is. And keep your eye on that. Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. All that the prizes, all the prizes the world offers are all temporary. And all the struggles the world brings are all temporary. Jesus is the forever Savior. Jesus is the forever King. And he deserves our attention. Where he is is the place we should want to be. And so how do we respond to the pulls of the world, to the pushes of the world? Part of that answer is we, we respond with anticipation of where life is headed, of where we're going. 
Debbie and I have a, a vacation trip planned in August. Um, I would like to say we'd be thinking of you the whole time, but that probably won't happen. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. We're going to be going to Acadia National Park in, in Maine, and so we're, we're planning where we're going to be. I already have every breakfast spot within driving distance is already listed. I found a place that has a comfortable reading chair. Debbie wants us to find trails and do stuff walking around in the woods. So I found what are the easiest trails. They have trails where it says you have to climb up iron bars in the face of a rock. What kind of vacation is that? Falling to your death. If you have to sweat, you're working too hard for vacation. But we have it laid out. We're thinking about being there instead of here. We're thinking about just the two of us there and not all of us there. We're getting close enough that anticipation is building and daydreaming of what it will be like. Isn't that part of the vacation? Is the anticipation, the daydreaming, the thinking of how perfect it will be. On those days, there will be no traffic. (laughs) We'll just flow through those roads at any speed we want. No one's gonna be in our way because it's the vacation I'm anticipating. We have that so much more in what Christ has promised. You're allowed to daydream of what it will be like. To think what will be the glorious presence of Christ. Life without sin. Life where all the sinners around us are no longer sinners. A life of never feeling guilt or remorse and never having anything to be remorseful for. There's so much to daydream about that we are remembering our home. And the pull of what the world promises, it's not enough. The second direction given to us, not only know where your home is, know who is most worthy and lift him up. Verse 15. Through him, let us then continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Deep down, you know Jesus is better than. I don't have to convince you that he is better than, but our mind is like a public plaza. You know, there are all kinds of people and ideas are just coming through all of the time. How many mornings have you begun committing yourself to the Lord leading you to be full of his spirit, to be used by him, and in that moment, you believe it, and you're thinking, it's not that hard. I just love God all day long. And how long does that last? All of a sudden, just distraction you're here and there all kinds of ideas and things and events are running through and we find ourselves 
over here. And that's why we, we need what he says to continually offer up the sacrifice of praise. Proclaiming the worthiness of Christ keeps us in perspective. But our mind just gets filled. We need to look for ways. We, we just simply have to think through, how will I try to practice that? And one way, change your notification system. Forget the notifications for social media. You can always find it. Uh, somehow notifications about that I will give attention to the Lord. And since every believer needs this help, let our shared conversation be filled with thoughts of Jesus. Because there's not a single believer who doesn't need help in this. Lastly, the direction we're given, where your home is, who is most worthy, what is deserving of your energy. And work for that. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other words, put your money where your mouth is, as the world would say. How do we live what we say we believe? What does it look like that Jesus is Lord, that we trust him, that we have an eternal home, that we are shaped by the gospel, that the spirit of God lives in us, that this is the only pure truth that exists. How do we live what we believe? As the world rages, quietly and graciously, just build a life on activity that pleases the Lord Jesus. Let the world scream and shout. Let other people be those who will correct every wrong thing said on Facebook. There are people to do that. You don't have to worry about it. It's covered. Just build one gracious word and gracious, gracious action on top of another. And think small, because we can do small. We can fit that in. We don't have to wait for when something big happens. When God gives me a million dollars, he's going to get some. How about with the 20 in your pocket? How much of that does he get? What, what small things can we do? one after another. We can manage the small, we can do more of small, and the Holy Spirit can multiply the small. He expands the small, and in the end, we can build a life where the impact of our life is the person of Jesus in us and through us. And is that not what you would want more than anything? Believer, you have the kingdom of Christ. So don't drag in empty promises. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
we ask that you would help us uh, to fill our minds with the thoughts of you, our Lord, to take joy in the God of our salvation, to trust in you who shows yourself to be faithful, to work for you, who leads us always in what is good, uh, to feed on you who satisfies our soul. Oh, Lord, help us in this. And for those who do not see and know, turn on the light in their souls that they might see Christ wondrous and Savior. In his name we pray, amen.